0: There was never a harder work than jobs. I don't think he he worked a 40 hour week in his life. I think it was an 80 to 100 hour week. The
1: Founder Formula brings you in behind the curtains and inside the minds of today's brave executives at the most future leaning startups. Each interview will feature a transformative leader who's behind the wheel at a fast-paced and innovative tech firm. They'll give you an insider's look at how companies are envisioned, created, and scaled. We hope you're ready. Let's get into the show. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the show. We so appreciate you listening to our podcast. My name is Todd Galena, and today... We continue our two-part interview with Silicon Valley legend, Nolan Bushnell. He's been called the father of video games. and In episode 25, our previous episode, we covered his career through his time at Atari and ultimately to the sale of Atari to WarnerMedia. From here on out, Sandy and I are going to be discussing his first adventure after leaving Atari and his fascinating relationship with the iconic Steve Jobs.
2: I want to shift gears for a bit because Nolan has impacted really kind of the broader universe and, and, and sphere of entrepreneurship. You obviously pioneered the gaming industry, but you also got into the the restaurant business at one point uh, with Chuck E. Cheese. Was Chuck E. Cheese your concept and vision? We have a little bit of a difference in history on that one, Nolan. I, I, I was under the impression that Warner acquired... Atari from you, and at one point you acquired Chuck E. Cheese from Warner. But there, there's some history out there that actually suggests that you you created Chuck E. Cheese from scratch and that it was your your vision from the outset.
0: Well, they're actually both true. I I started Chuck E. Cheese inside Atari. I set up a little division, hired a general manager for it, and sketched out you know what what needed to be done. And uh, it got open, but it was engineered by my engineers. The guy who's running it figured out the pizza recipe and, and all that. And so I was the creator of the high concept, but they actually implemented the concept. Then one of the things I discovered is that big companies are stupid. <laughs> and that uh, they didn't see that i was just vertically integrating towards the market Mm -hmm. we were selling coin operated games at the time for about two thousand bucks but the coin drop in those machines would be thirty to forty thousand dollars for the life of that product so any idiot could see that we were on the wrong side of the equation selling you know making a five hundred dollar margin on a on a two thousand dollar machine versus operating it getting 30 grand so when you say i got into the restaurant business i really got into the arcade business disguised as a pizza business (laughs) yeah love that so obviously
1: hugely successful at at its peak i think it was well over 250 um, locations but then later down the road or right around the same time you started an incubator Called Catalyst, and, and I think this gave you the opportunity. If you don't mind me just you know guessing, gave you the opportunity to kind of pick and choose um, some companies that you wanted to help fund, and then kind of keep your toe in the water while they were while they were developing. Have a small piece of those companies. Can you tell us a little bit about those incubator
0: years? Why and, and what excited you about that time? Well, I was I felt that that people that every time you have a startup you have a built-in inefficiency because people come in whole numbers. And so the first year you maybe need ten percent of an accountant. And uh and you maybe you don't want your entrepreneurs to spend a week figuring out which Xerox machine to get and what uh you know health insurance and all that stuff. So I felt that by automating that and sharing things like Payroll and accounting and uh, and health insurance. And I called it funding the company by with a key. And the key um, unlocks the door and the bank account's all set up, the payroll set up, the accounting books are all ready to go. There's already a, sh- a shared Xerox machine, fax machine, what have you. And so the person who's the entrepreneur can really start working on their project that afternoon. And I felt that that was a very efficient way to found and and run companies. It was also an outgrowth of the fact that a lot of the neat things that I had planned for Atari, Warnie didn't want to do. They wanted to be monofocused onto video games. And uh, I love this story. We had developed the fastest modems in the world with lowest latency. And the idea was that we were going to get a uh, closet in every area code with a bunch of modems that you could call in and play games over the telephone lines. And it turns out that the IP that we IP stack that we were using in, in the communication protocol was almost identical to the IP stack for the Internet. This was in 1976, <laughs> and I think that there's a possibility that had I not sold Warner and continued to pursue that, that I could have owned the internet.
2: Amazing. It
0: would have been a lot more fun. <laughs> well, yeah. it's a bit of a reach, but we would definitely had a, uh, a network of, of connected computers all over the world.
2: That's incredible. Let's talk a little bit more about Catalyst Technology. So, under under this incubator, a company by the name of KadabraScope came to life. Tell us what KadabraScope is.
0: KadabraScope was actually in Chuck E. Cheese, and it was it was the core of computer animation. And we had a big Vax seven hundred and eighty uh, and various other things, but rendering video with the technology in those days was just slow. It would take that big computer almost 24 hours to render a single frame. And, uh, and it was meant to make computer animation and uh, spent a lot of time on it. And it turns out that mm-hmm. the, the technology, I later sold it to Lucas and it became the cap, the, um, uh, bedrock of uh, Pixar and um, and then later of course Jobs bought it and I think that he bought it because he was fascinated because I showed him cadaverscope with Chucky when he was a younger guy and uh, he was really interested in and I said but you don't do it until you can render a frame in less than three or four minutes and what he realized is that he it was when render farms were just starting. And in fact, I'd never heard the term render farm and Steve knew it. And that was one of the things that, that, uh, uh, made him pursue the the purchase of, of Pixar. ultimately.
1: That's crazy. So yeah, the near, you were this close to the internet, this close to, to Pixar in some ways. And Sandy and I have a lot of questions about Steve jobs. So we're going to stick a pin in there. I know you just mentioned him, but we know that, uh, as, as we kind of get to, to pass the, the catalyst part of the history, and, and we know that you are now part of verse six, we're very excited about hearing what happens with that. What excites you about the future? What What's next, Nolan? What are the things that you, you think about? Obviously, a lot of different things. For those of you who can't see Nolan, we are speaking with him from his workshop. In his, what can I assume is his garage? But <laughs> this guy is uh, working away even as we speak. But what has you excited about the future, Nolan?
0: I'm very fascinated by bioimplants and quantum computing, and bioimplants, I think, can do some wonderful things. Also, nanobots—the whole idea that you can create these micro machines that can float in your bloodstream and repair your arteries and do various things—you know, have a have enough smarts to be able to detect a, a coronavirus and pluck it out. I think that nanobots, nanotechnology, is going to be very, very important for healthcare in the future. I mean, there's all ways you can postulate how how a you can program a little machine to maybe differentiate between a malignant cell and a regular cell. And then the, the whole area of bioimplants, where we become the cyborg a little bit. We don't look that bad. But... Uh, We're basically getting there when you wear an Apple watch or a heart rate monitor or or a lot of the other things. So I'd like to make the comparison that when you're playing a game, it's very often you see the little hearts up on the side of how much health you have. Well, I think in the future, you're going to have a, a readout on your, on your phone that tells you how much heart, how much health you have. And, uh, and it will advise you that the things you're doing right now are not helping or the things that you're doing right now are helping to increase your health. So this feedback system, I think, will be very interesting to the people of the future.
2: Perhaps the next invention by Nolan Bushnell. You heard it here first. <laughs>
1: <laughs> during, this, during this discussion, you mentioned that at, at times you are a bit further out than you than you thought the market uh, would be ready for to hear you talk about this do you have a better sense of of when you think this would be a reality
0: not a clue i mean the the thing about nanotechnology is really primitive right now and uh and not even well they've got they've got little swimming nanobots and and uh, things that that are, are really clever but they're not they don't have the power to be truly useful now. But that's a, you know, because one of the questions you have is how do you power a nanobot? And uh, and there has to be a, a sort of a dynamic little energy generator that fuels the nanobot kind of the same way that the metabolism in a muscle cell fuels it. And there's some work being done there, but it's... It's really primitive. So if you can't see something actually working in the lab, it's more than ten years out usually. If it's working in the lab, then it's five years out.
1: Yeah, this is not working in the lab. It's my best best guess. So yeah, further. yeah. Sandy, do you have anything else for for Nolan before we well, move into the the Steve Jobs?
2: I do, and and you know I think we skipped over one monumental point in in sort of Nolan's innovation history, which is, he mentioned he, you know, really cadaver scope was the bedrock of what is Pixar today. One area we did not cover is, and Nolan, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but Etoc.
0: ETAC, yeah. ETAC. ETAC was actually the company that was founded at four in the morning in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, halfway between uh, Hawaii and Long Beach over a chart table. Because we were doing navigation and, and said to ourselves, hey, this would be really easy if we didn't have all this squishy stuff under us. We were on a sailboat running, racing in the Transpac. And, uh, and I said, you know, we should do that. And we got through the race. We won the race, instantly. Congrats. And self-pat on the back. And then um, we founded the company and uh, it became massively successful. In fact, if you use Google Maps or any of the mapping apps right now, uh, they're all using pieces of the database that we created.
2: Amazing when you think about. I mean, that's a technology we basically use every day to get from point A to point B. And again, Nolan is the source of of that innovation.
1: Crazy. Okay, so Nolan, before we move on to basically the the the, we had some Steve Jobs questions. Is there anything else you would want to impart on on founders and, and entrepreneurs who might be listening to the show?
0: Well, I tell entrepreneurs that they can't just go to college or they can't just drop out of college and think they're good for entrepreneurship. You've got to have a lot of experience. You've got to have, you know, you. you I think you need to fill your brain full of all kinds of weird things because good entrepreneurship is a synergy. And if you don't have enough raw material to put together, you're not going to get as good as stuff. The other thing I talked to entrepreneurs about, is I said, remember, this isn't about your idea when you're in front of a VC, they're asking whether they should hire you as a CEO. And that when you say, well, you know, I, they ask you a financial question. They say, well, my, my uh, CFO will take care of that. Wrong. You've got to be the profit architect of your company. That means you, you know, you can't really be an entrepreneur unless you can speak accounting, and uh, and it's it's. I think a lot of people th- get over focused on their idea, not focused enough on the infrastructure, which is their own skill set. Yeah, they're they're
1: investing in a, in a in a whole person, right? Not just the idea. That's amazing.
0: Right. Well, and, and a lot of times it's team. Because um, you're judged by the company you keep, and if you have a good team that all sort of vet out, that's also a good thing. An advisory board and a board of directors, all that helps. Yeah,
1: you you find yourself currently on a couple of boards, people, and, and mentoring people, which I imagine is just a tremendous value to those companies.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, I mean, well, to that point exactly, Todd. So you've been on on many many boards. I could name a dozen. Describe what it's like to be an advisor versus the founder. Do you see things more clearly when it's not your your baby?
0: No, you, you don't see more clearly. You see a different perspective. But you don't have time to get down into the nitty-gritty of what their actual problems are. But you can look at global problems of, of their strategy. And that's kind of the help. I also think that, uh, being that when I'm on the board, I'm responsible for providing a little bit of, uh, of stand up comedy. <laughs> because I firmly believe that people who, and companies that take themselves too seriously will fail. They have to walk this line between work hard, play hard and, uh, be responsible or be silly. And, and I believe that that balance that you have to balance all those factors
2: be responsible or be silly that one's going to go in the books i love that
0: (laughs) okay perfect uh so
1: you ready to move on to the steve jobs part with a few minutes we have left do you um you want to take the first one
2: sure so were you the one that hired steve jobs
1: no al was okay okay so we so just going through some of the history which i found just just borderline comical so He's at Atari, and one of the first things uh, I don't I don't know the chronological order, but we do know that he's he's part of the team, and eventually he wants to go on a sabbatical to India, and he is, and Atari to help him with this sends him to Germany to fix uh, a coin op game called Tank that had been experiencing a bunch of glitches. They sent him there to fix them, and then and then he was off to his sabbatical. Is is that is that fact or fiction?
0: Absolute fact. but but here's the funny part the germans were always the squeaky wheel and i thought that if i you know if i sent jobs that he'd be cantankerous enough that they wouldn't want us to help them ever again
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh okay can i take the next one yeah of course all right. Another, another famous story uh, around him being at the company is that, you know, I'd mentioned earlier in the, in the conversation, we were talking about breakout of uh, being your second game. And one of the, one of the things that needed to be addressed before it was brought to market is it had 75 chips and that chip number needed to be reduced tremendously. And the company had a contest to all engineers, Hey, who can reduce uh, the amount of chips and by how much? And Steve had submitted an entry to the contest that had the chips that go from 75 to 25. But in reality, the work had been done by his buddy, Steve Wozniak. Fact or fiction?
0: Part fiction, part fact. The real story is that we had a bidding project uh, process where engineers could decide which games they wanted to do because they got a kind of royalty if, we, if they did a good, a good game. And none of them wanted to do breakout. And Steve had just come back from his sabbatical. And he was on the night shift, primarily so that he could hang out with the Waz. I looked at it as, as having two Steves through the price of one. <laughs> and, and I assigned jobs, the project. And it was a thing where I gave them a bonus program. For which, if they reduced the chip count, they'd they'd get more money. They'd get a bonus, and so uh, and that's where getting a really really tight design was was good. Now, the bad part of that story is that several years later, I was sitting around the the uh, dinner table with Wozniak, and I asked him. I said. What did you do with the um, the, month, the your half of the bonus for breakout? And he says I went out to dinner. And I said, Well, that must have been an expensive dinner. <laughs> and and Jobs had told Waz that he got a five hundred dollar bonus when in fact he got a five thousand dollar bonus. And then uh, Waz says, Damn it, he did it to me again. Then.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, for those of you that don't know. Um, Steve Jobs was hired into Atari as employee number 40. Nolan, can you describe your relationship with Jobs throughout the years?
0: He said that I was his mentor, that I liked Steve's mind a lot. And one of the threads of our conversations was uh, determinism versus free will. And sort of the Hegelian Kant. model of philosophy, you know, Heidegger, Locke, what have you, versus the Eastern, Buddha, Confucius, you know. And that was always really fun to sort of mash up against this because Steve didn't know that much about Western philosophy and I didn't know much about Eastern philosophy. And we sort of tugged and pulled and taught each other on that, which I find very, very nice.
1: Did you guys have any further interactions, um, business-wise, when he was at Atari? Was he? Did you guys still communicate with one another?
0: Oh yeah, but then, then when he left to start Apple, he came to me for a third of Apple computer for fifty thousand dollars, and I turned him down, which I've really regretted. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but no, in,
0: yeah, but in, but in some ways, I'm not sure. The person he got to invest instead of me was a guy named uh, Markula, and he was sort of adult supervision in the early years of, of Apple. And I wouldn't have been able to do that. And I think that Apple may not have succeeded if it hadn't been for Markula. So I think that at least I, I tell myself that when I'm not crying.
2: <laughs> Why did you decline Jobs' offer to invest in Apple?
0: I didn't think he could be a good CEO. He was just barely a tolerable engineer. I mean, he was a good. He was a good technician, and and a pretty good engineer. But he was not personable. He didn't he didn't have what I considered the skills to be a team builder. You
1: just described
0: the skills of someone you would
1: expect uh, a Silicon Valley VC uh, firm to invest in, and it doesn't sound like he had much of that. So at the time, it was probably a very sound decision. I'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always two Steve Jobs. There was the Steve Jobs, the first half before he left Apple, and then there was the, the second one, which is the one that most people, I, I think, remember is more the second coming. But, uh, okay, one last thing regarding I one Steve
0: thing I, I can say, though, that people should understand is there was never a harder worker than Jobs. I mean, I don't think he, he worked a... 40 hour week in his life. I think it was an 80 to 100 hour week. And I've often thought that when he came back to Apple, Apple was just a mess. Gil Emilio and Scully had just basically knocked the wheels off his beloved company. And when he came back, I heard people saying that he basically was there all the time. And I think that that can affect your health after time. And I think it ultimately killed him. Wow.
2: I've heard you say before that the true entrepreneur is a doer, and it sounds like Steve Jobs was indeed a doer.
0: Yeah, no question about it. Well, Nolan, I think
1: that's, that's everything from us. I know we took a, a full hour with you here. You know, Before we let you go, is there, is there anything else uh, you want to share with the audience? Um, we definitely heard you loud and clear about Verse six. Sandy and I are going to spread the word quickly hopping in here. To do that, we'd love for you to go to 6.games. So basically that's www.virsix.games. There you'll see an opportunity to get involved with them through Kickstarter. I'm also going to give you guys the direct Kickstarter link as part of the podcast notes. So please check that out and get involved if you can. Again, that's virsix.games
0: and I just encourage people to take a look at it it's truly remarkable wow Sandy what a treat huh
2: this was the highlight of of my year probably thank you so much Nolan it was such a pleasure speaking with you and we appreciate all the wisdom
0: well I I I want to be appreciated for my humor
2: (laughs) (laughs) the the levity definitely kicks in and we appreciate that thank you so much
0: okay thanks a lot
1: you guys You're welcome. See you, Nolan. Thanks a ton. Okay, bye now.
2: Trace 3 is hyper-focused on helping IT leaders deliver business outcomes by providing a wide variety of data center solutions and consulting services. If you're looking for emerging technology to solve tried and true business problems, Trace 3 is here to help. We believe all possibilities live in technology. You can learn more at trace3.com slash podcast. That's trace3.com slash podcast.
1: You've been listening to The Founder Formula, the podcast for all things startup from Silicon Valley to innovators across the country. If you want to know what it takes to lead tomorrow's tech companies, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.